going to talk about another kind of fatness this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, where we're going to look at the good servant's discipline. When I was in my early 20s and newly wed, I was opposite of what that song talked about. I was very thin, uh, six foot four, 163 pounds dripping wet. I had grown seven inches my senior year of high school, two inches after that. I was, according to my brothers, built like a Q-tip. And when I ate a lot, they said I looked like a pregnant Q-tip. Well, needless to say, I was stretched out, and a friend of, a friend of mine who was a, who was a bodybuilder and a sports writer, um, he he said, you know, you ought to gain some weight. I said, I, I, don't, I don't gain weight well. My metabolism is so high, I just never gain anything. It doesn't matter how much I eat. He says, I think I can help you. So he says, let me put something together. So I said, okay. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give it a try. So he began to have me eat incredible amounts of food. I mean, when I think back on it, I can't imagine I ate that much. But uh, I began to eat things like, you know, 80 eggs a day or 80 eggs a week and big flats. I would buy them and sandwiches and hamburger patties and eggs and all kinds of things that had enzymes so things could digest and super protein bars and weight gainer drinks. And before I went to bed each night, I would, uh, we concocted a shake that was 4,500 calories and I'd drink that every night before I went to bed. And then I would go to the gym and I would work out six days a week with another friend of mine, uh, Dennis, uh, who we nicknamed the Wedge because he was so muscular and uh, wedge-shaped. Dennis um, could do 1,160 dips in an hour. Uh, He had huge arms and huge chest and these little bird legs, and so he was kind of my trainer guy. And... And so I ate and ate and worked out, and at first I, I gained like a pound a week, man. I was just screaming. Uh, that only lasted for about a month. And then it took me about two weeks to gain a pound, and then after that it became once every month and then once every four months. And then when I got to 198, my goal was 200, I just stopped. I just couldn't gain anymore. It didn't matter how much I ate, what I did, I could not gain another pound. And uh, so finally, I just, after about a year and a half, I just quit. I was so tired of walking around with, you know, jugs of whole milk and pemmican bars and, you know, things that I just gave up and just started eating normally again. And just by doing that, I immediately lost 18 pounds. The irony of it all is now that I sit at a desk all day and I try not to eat very much and uh, I don't exercise very much at all, I'm easily able to break the 200-pound barrier. (laughs) Uh, That is... That is interesting. And it goes to show you that bodily exercise profits little. I mean, all that effort I put in to achieve whatever I was able to achieve just went away in just like a month. And today we are going to look at a different kind of exercise, not bodily exercise, but spiritual exercise, a type of exercise which not only benefits you in this life and in all things, but even in the age to come. 
We have encountered many great truths in 1 Timothy. We have seen things about false doctrine and false teachers and those who have shipwrecked their faith, about prayer, about men's and women's roles, about the qualifications of elders and deacons and women who serve. And we have seen that the church is to be a pillar in support of the truth. We have seen all these great truths... And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we've seen the danger of apostasy and false doctrine and false teachers. And in the section before us, in verses 6 through 16, it's just the, the yummiest passage that ever was for me. I mean, I just love this passage because this passage just profiles what it means to be a man of God and how to get there. What it means to be an excellent minister of Jesus Christ or a good servant of Jesus Christ. And we have already seen from verse 6 that the man of God, the excellent minister, is one who constantly nourishes himself up on the words of the faith. He is constantly pointing out truth to others, and he is constantly obeying that truth that he is nourished up on and pointing out to others. And now in the text before us, we are going to go to God's gym. And we will see the antidote for dealing with false doctrine, apostasy, and how to grow into an excellent minister of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that phrase in verse 6 is the controlling phrase of the entire section. It tells us, the whole section, how to be that good minister of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Timothy 4, and starting in verse 6, follow along as I read down through verse 16. Paul says, In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. For it is this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. 
So in verse 6, we have seen that the good minister is constantly teaching, constantly being nourished up in the words of the faith and sound doctrine, and constantly obeying that which he teaches and studies. And everything in the text now is going to bring us to this important point of being an excellent minister. And so today we're going to look at the excellent minister's disciplined life, his exercise routine that he goes through to achieve what God has called him to achieve. Look again at verses 7, 8, and 9. Paul says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. So in these two verses, we have the exercise routine laid out. First, you must discipline yourself to avoid worldly fables. Secondly, you must discipline yourself to pursue godliness. And third, the text gives us the rationale why you must discipline yourself for godliness. So let's look at these. Look at verse 7. The first part of the verse says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Anyone who has been an athlete in training knows that you must avoid certain things. You have to avoid eating certain things. You have to avoid skipping workouts. You have to avoid um, a lot of things in order to achieve your goal. You, don't have, you only have so many hours in a day, and a lot of the things that you could do, you choose not to do. You avoid them so that you can pursue that one goal of being that uh, prize-winning person. If you've ever heard or listened to any of the interviews of some of the Olympians, it's just amazing how much they train hours and hours, day after day for four years to have a chance at the gold medal. In the same way, if you want to be an excellent minister, you must avoid certain things. And Paul says one of the things you have to avoid, worldly fables, worldly fables. Really, the word means to have nothing to do, to refuse, decline, or shun, to say no to or excuse yourself from something you could do but is not profitable for you. Have nothing to do with these fables. It is a present middle imperative, which means you cause yourself to always avoid these fables. The Greek word being muthos, the word we get myths from. We saw it over in chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul tells Timothy not to pay attention to myths and genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And these myths, these Jewish myths that they would get caught up in, the Jews, of course, would, would uh, write commentaries, and the Orthodox Jews are very still in tune to those commentaries, so much so that oftentimes the commentaries begin to add to and actually become more authoritative than the Scriptures. Different apocryphal stories or uh, extra-biblical writings, which had some essence of biblicity to them, would then be accepted as truth and doctrine would begin to be founded upon them, producing mongrel teachings. Teachings that were not biblical, that were not true. And so Paul tells Timothy, what I want you to do is stay away from these sorts of things. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you were to turn over there, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, right after exhorting Timothy to preach the word, this is what he says. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to muthas, myths. Paul is not condemning a fiction reading per se here. He is condemning fiction that is presented as biblical truth, as truth from God. He is, he is saying, reject always and continually truth derived from other sources than the Bible. One time I engaged in a little dialogue with a Catholic man who was very studious and scholarly and, and studied diligently. And this Catholic man wanted to talk to me about some things. I think he was hoping to convert me to Catholicism. And so I said, okay, well, let's, you know, talk about the sinlessness of Mary and purgatory and papal infallibility and things like that. And so we did. And what is interesting is we began to dialogue. I just said, well, point number one, Bible never mentions those. And then what was interesting is when I showed him, he'd try to find little verses. Of course, they were always ripped out of context. And I said, I said, come on, show me a verse that really says Mary was sinless. My Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who even approaches sinlessness. We are all totally depraved. We are wicked through and through. That's why Jesus died for us, because we're sinners. And then he would always say, well... Let me show you mythos, myths. He would take me to church councils, papal writings, apocryphal books to try and prove. And I say, hey, I don't even want to go there. If you can't show me from the Bible, then I don't want to hear it. You see, what happens is, is some people are are deceived because they've taken things which have the essence of Bible sprinkled in them, and they've taken them to form their doctrine. Several years ago, I went to a spiritual warfare um, conference. Uh, it was a waste of time, but I went there because I kept having, I kept dealing up with people who were, who showed up in my office who said, "Yeah, I went to this guy, and he told me that you know I was all full of demons and." So finally, I thought, i got to go hear what this guy's teaching. So I went there, and in the conference, the guy actually referenced Frank Peretti's books as a proof of certain doctrines. I thought, holy mackerel. Frank Peretti is a great storyteller, but he is a fiction writer. Even his books that have biblical themes are fiction. Far from what the scriptures teach in many places. And it is dangerous when we take things like that and then put emphasis upon them and actually make them authoritative so we confound our doctrine. This is why every minister stays away continually from fables and fiction pawned off as truth. He doesn't even go there. And look what Paul says about them. He says, have nothing to do with them because they are worldly. 
The word means godless or profane, literally lawful to be trampled underfoot. They're trash to be stepped on. That kind of thing. Why? Because they have elements of biblical truth, but they take what the Bible says, they distort it, they corrupt it, and go beyond what they say. And they are to be just rejected. And Paul gets derogatory. I mean, look at what he says. He says, these things are fit only for old women. These are old wives' tales. He says, this is nothing than you can expect from some pagan superstitious woman who's living in some place trying to pawn off her superstitions and mysticism on, you know, unwary grandchildren. He says, that's all those things are good for. They're not for the believer. They have no value in growing in godliness. They're just pure superstition, you know, founded on... On nothing but imagination of men. So stay away from those. If you're going to be an excellent minister, don't go there. Don't listen to it. People come up to me sometime and they want to say, you know, here, read this book about the lost, uh, you know, years of Jesus. I say, I'll throw it away for you. I don't even want to go there. Believe me, there's been a lot of books where I read they were so bad that, you know, I thought, you know, I could give these to a bookstore or something, but then I thought, well, I don't want anybody else to read them, so I just throw them in their trash can. You don't even go there. You avoid those myths. Secondly, look at verse 7. He gives a contrast here. Not only you to always be avoiding those myths and fables, but on the other hand, he says, you are to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is another present active imperative, which means you are to always be being in the state of disciplining yourself for godliness. The word discipline is a great word. It's the Greek word gymnazo, the word we get gym from and gymnasium and gymnastics. It literally means to exercise naked, if you can think of that. I was thinking, you know, so, so, how does that work? Um, in uh, Ephesus, they had this huge Colosseum. It uh, sat some, they estimate, 50 to 100,000 people in this one Colosseum. It was the biggest Colosseum or outdoor amphitheater that the ancient world ever built. This giant Colosseum. And in that Colosseum, they would constantly have games. It was part of, of Greek culture that every young man between about the ages of 16 and 18 would train diligently to perfect his body, to look good, to achieve uh, you know, superiority in sports and games. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? They worshipped their bodies and prized uh, the, the you know, anatomy and muscular tone and things like that, just like today. And the excellent minister understands that he is to be well-trained. He is to be like an athlete who diligently trains, but in the spiritual realm. He is to diligently train and exercise and work out towards a different purpose, not sports, not athletics, not appearance, but godliness. The word godliness is Eusebia, godly piety, um, godly character, godly devotion, uh, righteousness exuding from a person's life. And this is what the excellent man is to always be disciplining himself towards. And Paul is not talking about legalism here. He's not saying you and the power of the flesh go out there and make yourself godly. No. 
What he's saying here is you in God's power, with God's resource, with God's calling, with the authoritative command of the word of God, you obey and do what God says you need to do in order to be the man that God wants you to be. That's what he's saying. It's the same imagery Paul used in 1 Corinthians 9. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this same type of thing as he's um, talking about his ministry. And he says this in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." Paul said, my ministry is like, is like an Olympian athlete. I have a goal, godliness. I take all pains. I try to subdue all things and have self-control in every single area by God's Spirit, by God's grace, obeying the command of God to achieve what God wants me to achieve which is to have a greater godliness. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice he says, let us cleanse ourselves, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It takes effort. God gives us the pass to his gym. God gives us the strength to work out. He tells us what exercise routine we are to have. He gives us all the equipment we need for life and godliness. But we must work out by his grace. A while back in Reader's Digest, there was an article entitled, The Toughest School on Earth. And uh, it was a great, great article. It was about the training men go through to be a Navy SEAL. And in this uh, article, it talked about this week that they call Hell Week. In order to be a Navy SEAL, you have to go through Hell Week and survive. And what they do is they do everything they can to just break these men down and force them to work as a team. They put them in little skiffs and make them paddle out into the crashing surf. They make them exercise relentlessly. They cause them to have sleep deprivation. They get them up at all times and don't let them sleep sometimes for days. They make them run and swim for miles, you know, out in the open there of the ocean. They're swimming out there. The training is so difficult that most don't even make it through just one week. They make an eight-man crew carry a life raft above their heads, arms lift full length, 175 pounds. They make them jog up and down the beach with it. They then, in the middle of the week, cause them to carry a 200-pound section of telephone pole. 
Eight of them have to hold it up. And after two hours, if they can make it to two hours, they can set it down. If they drop it just one time, they get the 300-pound piece of telephone pole called Old Misery. They have to carry this thing and hike around with this pole. And the only way they can do it is by working as a team. They make them crawl through slimy mud where the, this, this river comes from the city and dumps into the ocean. And it's all slimy and slick and smelly dumping in the ocean. They make them crawl out there into this slime on their belly. And then they say, well, you get to stay here tonight. And then across the way, upwind on the nice green lawn... The other officers and their wives set up a big feast and have a big table and eat a big dinner while they're sitting there in the stinking mud all night, exhausted and worn out. And this is the kind of stuff they make them go through. Why? So they can be a Navy SEAL. So they can have a temporary position. It's a noble position. They are the elite of the special operations forces. And it made me wonder as I read this article because I just it just goes on and on about what they go through that week. I thought, I wonder how many Christians would be willing to go through Hell Week to serve Jesus. Hmm. These guys are going through Hell Week so they can be Navy SEALs for a time. But we have a crown which is imperishable. We have things which eye has not seen or ear heard or entered in the heart of man, all that God has prepared for us. The trials of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that God will give to us. And what are we willing to go through? No excellent minister is willing to deny the suffering he must go through. All excellent ministers go through hell week all their life. That's what it is. The irony of it is, is the more godly you are, the more opposition you get. The more you're hated, the more you're persecuted, the more Satan attacks you, the more he tries to tempt you, the more you find yourself at odds with the world, the godlier you get, the more attack there be, the more enemies you have, and life carries on. But he is willing to do it. He is one who lays down his life for the sheep to protect them, to feed them, to stand up and proclaim the truth. And that's what he has to do. Otherwise, he's not an excellent minister. He's willing to suffer, to hurt, to go without, to deny himself, to sacrifice, to die to self, to take up the log of the cross and follow after Jesus. He disciplines himself in every area and trains himself, denying many things that are good and acceptable, but which will hinder him from the task of achieving godliness. He labors, he toils, he sweats for the crown that will not fade away, and any man who will not can't be an excellent minister. A man who only dabbles in the scriptures, who only dabbles in prayer, who doesn't make study, meditation, and practice and teaching of the word of God and the words of the faith and sound doctrine, his all-consuming, all-absorbing passion is not an excellent minister. The word of God is clear here. And some of you may be thinking, well, Jack, man, that's fanatic. I mean, come on. I mean, that... You know, that would mean only a few people could be elders in the church and leaders in the church. That's right. Only a few. Why? Because only a few are willing to take the course that God has set before them and pay the price. Many are unwilling to pay the price. 
But the standard is right here and other places. And the church does not have the permission to lower the standard to accommodate mediocre men. The church must raise up men. God must raise up men in the church to meet the standard that God has set. But we don't have the prerogative to lower the standard so that it will match up to us. No, we come to the standard. We don't bring the standard down to us. And some men will never miss their workout, but they'll miss going to God's gym. They'll miss reading and prayer and service. They don't believe really in their heart of the future prize and glory that is to come. They are more worried about the pleasures of this present time than in the glory to follow, and they're not willing to take up their log and follow Christ, and so they don't. They aren't excellent. Some, over the course of a month, will spend many hours on their hobby, on their own little projects or whatever, but when it comes down to being a man of God and constantly being nourished up in the words of the faith, they won't do it. They won't do it. But the godly man dies to self, dies to the world, dies to the pleasures of the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He sacrifices things fleeting and temporary for things eternal. There was a quote one time, I remember hearing it from uh, Jim Elliott, who was was killed by uh, the Aka Indians, a missionary. And he said, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. How many of you have ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah. Guess where that was taken from? Thomas Watson. I'm reading from my doctoral project, the works of Thomas Watson. And there the quote is word for word. Then later on, I'm reading and I found out that Thomas Watson got it from Augustine. That is a great saying. You're not a fool to give up that which you can't keep to gain that which you can't lose. Oh, the godly man may dabble in hobbies and dabble in certain goals and tasks. But he can only really diligently train for one event. And that event is to be the excellent minister. He can't do shot put and javelin, just shot put. Just excellent minister. And let's look at the rationale. Look at verse 8. He says that the rationale is that bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it's whole promise in the present life and also for the life to come. Here Paul contrasts two kinds of discipline or exercise. Bodily physical discipline, which has its goal, fitness of the body, looks, feeling, you know, being in shape, having the six-pack abs or whatever. And then you have spiritual discipline, which has as its goal godliness, piety, spiritual maturity, and giving glory to God. And most of us know, especially as we get older, that there's this interesting thing that happens when it comes to exercise, isn't there? When you were young, you you were pretty in shape. You could get in shape pretty quickly. But as you get older and your metabolism slows down, you, you come to the grim reality that it takes you months to get in shape. Way longer than when you were young, And it takes you only a little while to get out of shape. Don't you hate that? I mean, you're disciplined for a long time. And finally, man, I'm finally feeling good. I'm looking good and everything's hunky. You just slide for a couple weeks, a month, and you're back to the couch blob again. 
You're just back to where you were. You get tired of running. You get tired of going to the gym. You get tired of eating salads and chicken with the skin taken off. taking those big handfuls of vitamins and things. And this is why Paul says bodily discipline is only of a little profit. It is temporary. It's fleeting. It doesn't pay eternal dividends. The scriptures teach our days are numbered and we can't do anything to extend those days. Do you realize God has your day numbered? He knows when you're going to die. He has decreed it from eternity. There's nothing you can do to shorten that time. There's nothing you can do to to lengthen it. You can't live beyond what he has decreed. You can't kill yourself. You're immortal until God calls you home. And after that, nothing can keep you alive. I grew up next to an old man. We called him Uncle Bill. He was a train engineer. He had been smoking for 73 years, he told me. Rolled his own cigarettes, no filters. Smoked like a chimney all day. Never ate breakfast, hardly ever ate lunch, only ate dinner, ate meat, potatoes, and bread. That was his diet with a continual course of whiskey from about noon until when he passed out at night. He made it till about 94, got around well, had good health until he was 94. Never went to the gym, never took vitamins, never jogged, never went to one aerobics class. Not even, you know, the kickboxing kind or whatever it is. Never! Then we know of other people, don't we? Other people out there are extreme, man. They worship their body. You know, they don't smoke and drink and cuss or chew or go with girls who do. They take vitamins. They exercise. They do every single thing they can. Aerobics and, you know... Low impact this and high impact that and high metabolism this. And they're always constantly watching about what they eat. And then they drop dead jogging. (laughs) Or they get some disease and it takes them out at, you know, 32. Why is that? You ever wonder why that is? Why is that? Why does this one guy just abuse himself all of his life and go to 94? This person here take perfect care of themselves. Drop dead, 32. Because God is in control of how long we live, not us. Think about the rich fool. Remember the story of the rich fool? The guy came up to Jesus and says, You know, tell my brother to give me some of the inheritance. Jesus, Jesus said, Hey, who, you know, who made me judge over you? But let me tell you a little parable. He told about this parable about this rich guy who stored up all the stuff and, you know, big I, me, my, and he will build bigger barns and store them all up. And finally he says, okay, I'm going to retire and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, you fool. You fool. Because this night, your life will be required of you. I am taking it from you. He said, so is the man who is not rich towards God. He should have been giving God glory all along. He should have been disciplining himself for godliness all along. But instead, he lived for himself and set up a kingdom for himself, thinking that he would have many days to come. And that night, he didn't get to enjoy any of it. I like what Solomon says. A man labors his whole life to accumulate riches and wealth only to die and leave it to a fool. And that's what he did. Our days are numbered. And the godly man understands that. He understands his body's going to get old. 
It's going to get wrinkly, and there's nothing he can do to stop that. I mean, you know, you can get a facelift and look like you're, you know, you're under G-force all the time, but <laughs> it's over. There's nothing you can do. You know, you can get a little treatments to make you look a little younger, but you're going to get old, you're going to get wrinkly, it's just the way it is, you're going to die, and they're going to put your body in the ground, the worms are going to eat it, it's over. That's it, we go back to dust. And that is why bodily discipline is of little profit. But godliness, he says, look at the text, godliness is profitable, first he says, for all things. This is great. Do you realize that everything you do as a believer in obedience to God, in the power of His Holy Spirit, gives glory to God, is an act of worship, will build up for you eternal weight of glory. And so everything we do as a believer walking by the Spirit of God is just constantly giving glory to God. All things are profitable when you're godly. But when you're ungodly, nothing is profitable. Zero. It's all a waste. It'll all be burned up. Secondly, look what the text says. Not only does it cause all things to be profitable, the second thing is it holds promise for this present life. I like this. Think about this. Think about all the godly people who have impacted others for good. You know, think about the Apostle Paul. Did he ever impact anybody for good? I mean, well, just look at his godliness of just that one person. Think of people like John Calvin and John Wycliffe and Jonathan Edwards and Hudson Taylor and Charles Spurgeon and Corey Ten Boom. Read Hebrews 11 sometime and look at all those incredible people that they said the world was not even worthy. And look at how many of them lived and how they came to their end. Son and two, thrown to lions, living in caves, wandering around in the earth, suffering, 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 suffering. Why? Because as you grow in godliness... Spiritual opposition comes. Because the world will hate you. The more you're like Christ, the more it's going to hate you. But they didn't care. Why? Because they they looked ahead to to a better future, to a city whose owner and maker and builder was God. And that's where they looked to. They were disciplined for godliness. And how did they get that way? Well, it wasn't because they thought about God once a week on Sunday morning. That's not how you become an excellent minister of Jesus Christ. You want to be a champion of godliness? You must persevere in these things, as we will see. Be absorbed in them. Billy Graham's uh, father-in-law, Dr. Bell, was a medical missionary. And he took care of a hospital that could hold 400 people. And oftentimes, he took care of 400 people by himself. Now, for those of you who are nurses, you you know what that means. But no matter how busy he was, how tired he was, he got up at 4.30 in the morning and he read his Bible and prayed for two to three hours every day. In his life, people said he was just like a walking Bible encyclopedia and was just so godly that people just were amazed at his piety, his Eusebia. But he paid the price. He paid the price. He was a champion of godliness because he disciplined himself for that. You'd see those hulking bodybuilders. They don't get that way because they go to the gym and lift once a week a little bit. They live at the gym. 
You see somebody who has a good grasp of the Bible, who is godly, you know something about that person. They live in the book. They live there because that's how they get constantly nourished up in the words of the faith. Finally, notice what the text says. That godly discipline also holds promise in the life to come. This is the third reason he gives. Not only is it good for all things, not only is it good for this life, but it's also good for the life to come. Do you realize that, that the Bible speaks of you receiving wards based on how you use the resources God gave you? Do you realize that, that your capacity to glorify God for eternity is part and measured by how much you suffer for the name of Christ here on earth? I mean, think of the parables that Jesus gave and how he talked about these people who did things on earth and then when the master comes in heaven, they are then given tasks or deeds in commensurate to how faithful they were here on earth, how they lived in godliness. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about men who, and women who see the truth of the scriptures, that this life is not all about looking good and being liked and having the hard body and having the perfect hair, whatever. I mean, those things are fine, but they're not fine if they cause you to neglect your godly disciplines. They are not good. They become wicked if you trade them for what is more important. And that's why Paul says this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Our capacity to give God's glory is linked to how much we're willing to walk with Him and suffer in this life. It's building up for us a glory far beyond all comparison. Your patience, your kindness, your wisdom, your self-control, and your love, all of your godliness will last for all eternity. Godliness is accumulative. It is eternal. You will take it with you. It is the only thing you will take with you for all eternity. What if they told you you could invest $1,000 Somebody said, you give me $1,000, I'll invest it for you, and I can earn for you $100 at the end of the year. And you're thinking, well, that's that's 10%. That's okay. And what if that person said, I'll tell you what, you give me $1,000, after a year, it'll earn you a million, and then every month after that, it'll earn so much money that we won't be able to count it. Now, you think of which investment would be good for you. And you go home and pray about it? No! No! It's, so, it's such a no-brainer. It is, it is so obvious and so clear. Why would anybody go for the first investment to get 10% when they could get an unlimited amount of money in return? And that's what Paul's saying here. You discipline yourself for godliness. Don't go off into bodily disciplines. To the exclusion of this, because this is good for all things, for this life and the life to come. The other thing, it's a little value. I mean, it might make you look good. It might make you feel a little better. But in eternity, it's not going to matter how many sit-ups you can do in an hour. So as we leave here today, we need to look at our lives 
And we need to ask ourselves, am I involving myself in things that really are of worthlessness, profane teachings, writings, conversations that have to do with extra biblical things that can't be supported from scriptures? Am I spending time there? You need to avoid those things. Secondly, you need to discipline yourself for godliness. Look at your life. How are you living? I mean, when you look back at last week or last month, I mean, how have you disciplined yourself? How, how much of the Bible have you read? Have you, you prayed? Are you serving in the church? And what are you doing? Just look at yourself. Make corrections if you need to. And then constantly remind yourself as you're bombarded with the world. Constantly remind yourself that having six-pack abs is not, not as important as reading my Bible for even a minute. Not even close. It's the $100 compared to infinity. And remember that your looks right now and how people perceive you right now is really of little consequence. When you die, you're going to get a perfect body. I don't know what that perfect body is going to look like, but I'm telling you, it's going to be way better than the one you have now. It's going to be way better. I always wonder when we die, will we be, you know, 33 years old like Jesus was when he died? Or if you die old, will you look old? If you die young, I mean, I don't know. But I know this, it will be immortal, it will be incorruptible, and it will last for eternity and be way better than your body you have now. So take this time to discipline yourself for godliness and wait for the perfect body. You won't even have to exercise for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can come before you and listen to you speak to us through your word. Father, this text is, is so important, especially for those of us who aspire to the office of overseer. As we come to this text and we look at our lives, it's convicting. But Father, may we not dare lower the standard. May we not presume upon your grace and be content with mediocrity in our own lives. Father, may all of us discipline ourselves for godliness. May we not be deceived by this world into thinking that those things, temporary and fleeting, are somehow important. And Father, I pray for those here who may not know you, those who listen to this and think, I don't, I don't even know what godly discipline is. Those who look at their lives and say, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray. I don't serve. And Father, if there's people like that here and right now in their hearts, they know that they aren't living for you. May you grant them repentance. May you open their hearts. May you help them to see that Christ died for them on the cross, that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And if they are willing to repent of their sins and follow after you, you will save them and give them the gift of eternal life and help to build those godly disciplines in their life. Father, we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.